few years ago when my children were very young, uh, I'd say Mackenzie was about five and Claire was about three, we had moved to a new church and we were invited out to have lunch with one of the older couples in the church. It seemed like a great offer. We wanted to get to know people, we wanted to spend time with people, and we were looking forward to it. Now, this was on Sunday after church, and so I had finished everything that a pastor does on Sunday morning. My sermon was done, and normally, if I'm honest, around one o'clock, I'm just kind of tired. And so, taking an invitation from someone is, can be risky on a Sunday afternoon, and, but this particular time, we decided to do it. And so, church was over, and we went and found this couple, and I love this couple with all my heart, so I'm even, uh, you know... <laughs> I'm a little scared to tell the story because I love these people, but they said, well, we'll go to our house. We live about a half hour away. Okay. So by the time we get there with our five-year-old and our three-year-old, it'll be almost one o'clock. They will have not eaten lunch yet, and that's normally when they, especially the younger one, take their nap. Okay. Okay. Well, we could do this one day, right? So we get in the car. We drive a half hour. We get there about one o'clock. We get out. We get into the house. And uh, the wife says, well, they're talking to us for a little while, time's going, and the wife says, well, I've got to go put the chicken in. <laughs> okay. Sharice and I gave one of those, like, marriage glances to each other. How long does a chicken take to cook? Uh, the answer is about three hours. which we just spent with them in a senior citizen's house, which didn't exactly have a nursery down the way or toys laying around. So right through nap time with our five-year-old and three-year-old, both very hungry, we kept telling them, don't touch that, stand away. No, that's not for you. No, that's not yours. No, stand back. Well, they just kept getting hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. Anytime you find yourself in a situation where hospitality is involved, there are expectations that everyone has. The host has expectations, the guest has expectations, and more often than not, those expectations are not communicated to each other because at a certain point, you think it might be rude. And so this is the situation to which we're brought to our proverb today. Our proverb is short and simple, so I'm not even going to invite you to stand. It's found in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 17, and it simply says this, seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, too much of you, and they will hate you. This is the word of the Lord. So many of these proverbs are just absolutely hysterical. I, I, it, many of them are like hard-hitting wisdom, and lots of them are really funny. It, because I imagine, I imagine that you read that, and you've been on both sides of the equation in this proverb. You have been the host who has had someone at your house for far too long. You have been the guest who has been the last to leave and wondered, should, should I have left an hour ago? We've probably been both of those people. Now, I want to show you an actual news clip from California of this proverb taken to an absolutely absurd length. Check this news story out. You know, 
most of us have experienced a house guest who has overstayed their welcome. No. But what happens when they flat out refuse to leave? That's what happened to one Orange County woman who has two on your side to get rid of the unwanted house guest. Mm -hmm. And here's investigator Christine Lazar. Well, you know, people think it's going to be really easy, sure, right? Sure. Most people would say put her stuff on the curb and lock yeah. the doors. But it's not that easy. Believe it or not, there are laws that protect unwanted house guests. No, let go of my let go of my microphone. What is no? She's a house guest who has overstayed her welcome. Is her name on the list? Her name is not on the list. Living out of Wendy Bear's Irvine apartment for months, sleeping on her living room floor, refusing to leave. I should leave. Yes, it's after all the things you've done to me. But this isn't your apartment. Did you ever think that it would be this hard to get rid of an unwanted house guest? Oh, absolutely not. If I did, I never would have invited her in. Back in February, Wendy says an old neighbor named Anne Marie Lynch called her up and asked her if she could come stay with her for a few weeks when she moved back to California from Florida. She told me that the people she was, she was living with at the time were crazy and they were stealing her belongings and she was desperate for a place to go. Wendy says the deal was for Anne Marie to only stay a month, but when four weeks passed, she says she showed no signs of leaving. She didn't once go on a job interview. She would just spend her day sleeping on my couch. When Wendy had enough, she says she told Anne Marie she was kicking her out. And that's when she says Anne Marie called the police. When they arrived, Wendy says they told her the only way she could get her unwanted house guest out was to evict her, even though she isn't on the lease and never paid rent. Oh, I don't understand how I can work so hard to rent out an apartment, pay all the utilities, and then have absolutely no rights to my place at all. Eviction attorney Melissa Marsh says the cops were right. It's not easy to kick out an unwanted house guest. If you allow a visitor into your home, or a guest, somebody who's traveling, a friend who wants to move to California, and they're there for more than three days, at that juncture, you are forced to give that individual a 30-day notice, and thereafter, possibly, face UD proceedings in eviction court. And if you try to just throw out their stuff and lock the door? That person can then sue you for damage to their property and an illegal lockout. Wendy did file the 30-day notice of termination of tenancy and she applied for a restraining order. She even risked a lawsuit and says she locked the doors one afternoon when Anne Marie decided to leave the apartment. I left for the night, went to a safe place with my daughter, came home the next day and she had broken in through a window and was sleeping on my floor. Anne Marie denies that and says it was Wendy who broke the window. I watched you do it and I filmed it. Oh, can I see? No, I'm not showing you anything. This isn't a court of law. This is my bedroom right now. Wendy and her daughter now have locks on their bedroom doors. They feel like prisoners in their own home. The kitchen, we don't even use it now. We just pick up food. I've been eating out of cans. So we asked Anne Marie to leave. Who do you think you're an actress? This is a whole fake, giant, ridiculous thing. Repeatedly. She's oh, offered to get you a hotel right now. We'll get you a hotel. Wendy and her boyfriend offered to get a moving truck and take Anne Marie and her dog to a motel and pay for a week's stay. Anne Marie finally agreed to leave two months after she arrived at Wendy's apartment. And it's been weeks and weeks of promising this and I can't believe she actually went. Thank you so much. I know she wouldn't have left if it wasn't for you.
And it's a good thing she did because eviction proceedings can take between 30 and 60 days, so it's not a quick process. The attorney says the best advice is to not allow anyone in your home for more than three days if they don't have a home or an apartment to go back to. Who knew you were going to get free legal advice today? The story is obviously absurd, and, and yet it's, it's true. It happened. And, and so you can see immediately in the text here in Proverbs, seldom set your foot in your neighbor's house, too much of you and they will hate you. This woman was hated. And of course, none of us, I don't think, are trying to take up house at our neighbor's floor for multiple months at a time. More often, the idea here is more short-term. For example, there was a young adult in my church that I pastored before where uh, he was super tech-savvy, he was ambitious, but he wasn't super sociable either. And so my children's pastor started a small group for young adults. And there were about 10 to 15 young adults in the church that would go over to my children's pastor house and they would have a small group together. And invariably, every single week, small group would end and people would stick around for a little bit. And people would begin to trickle after a while. Soon there would be eight there. And this young guy was always among the eight. Soon there would be five. And he was still there. Down to three. Yep. Still there. Every single week, he was the last one to leave. On a mid-week small group, always with the pastor and his wife having to work the next morning, and sometimes staying until well after midnight to chat at our children's pastor. Every single small group, he was the last one to leave, and usually it was at absurd hours. Eventually, they would start dropping hints to the guy. Hey, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's time for us to go to bed. Talk, talk, talk. Eventually, the children's pastor's wife would actually go to bed, close the door, go to sleep. Still there. More and more hints, more and more yawning and he would be the last one to leave. As I've thought about this proverb this week, I've wondered, how often have I been this guy before? How often have I been the last one to stay thinking that I'm charming and interesting and I was invited and people want me there, and yet I've overstayed my welcome because people keep talking back to me? I've recognized times that I was the last one at a dinner party at a good friend's house, or realizing that I was the first to an event that was scheduled at, on a time, and I assumed that was when it began. I've asked people to hang out only to be invited to an event that was already happening, already on their schedule that I hadn't been invited to before. Have you ever been this person before? Wondering if you belong, wondering if you're overstaying your welcome, wondering if you're welcome anymore. It is a tense place to be. It is awkward, it is difficult, and then you begin trying to figure out ways that you can get out. You wonder if in this social situation you are welcome or just being placated. Is someone just being nice to me or do I truly belong here? Now, my dad, I've talked about my dad a lot. He was a Coast Guard man, really smart. He did not always have the best social skills, uh, but he was a wonderful man. I loved him so much. But social skills were not his forte. 
One of the things he really liked was science fiction. If he ever got home before anyone else, you could guarantee that you would walk in the door and he would have the sci-fi channel on. He loved science fiction. And sometimes the stuff of science fiction could make its way into the way that he thought. He really enjoyed it. And so after my dad died, my mom told me at this one point that there was a season in my dad's life, again, big science fiction fan, that he began wondering if life was such that you were the center of the universe and everyone else was sort of programmed around you as if this world was your testing point for God. So it wasn't so much that the people around him was real, but that God was testing him to see how he interacted with all of these different people. It's almost like the Truman Show. Now, this is a crazy concept in a million ways, and I'll, I'll tell you one way in which I know this is a crazy concept. I am real. <laughs> so, so truly, this is crazy, and I don't want to throw my dad under the bus, but, but even though he explicitly wondered this out loud, I do wonder how many of us implicitly operate as if this is true that the rest of the world is not as important as me. I am the center of my own world. I am the hero in every story, and everyone else is either a protagonist helping me reach my goals or an antagonist keeping me from reaching my goals. It is not very hard to start breaking down the way we interact with people to realize that we've got a little bit of this coursing through our veins. Now, it's really hard to live otherwise because we are the only person that we are privy to motivation. We have to assign and assume motivation of everyone around us. We are the only person that we can know for sure whether or not we had good or bad intentions in a moment. And if we come into conflict with someone else, whether it's as simple as they won't go home or much more robust than that, it is our job to start filtering through intentions that we're not privy to in the person that we're in conflict with. That makes relationships profoundly difficult and it roots this proverb in a very interesting concept. If someone is entering into your space beyond their welcome and making your life difficult, how do we know whether or not they are malicious or ignorant? How do we know whether or not they're trying to make our life better or even just trying to make their life better? See, it's really hard to paint intention and understanding or even to have empathy of another person unless you try to fully understand them. And that's really hard to do because you can never take your eyes out and put them in another person and walk around seeing their world for 24 hours. It's impossible to do that. So much so, I remember when I was a junior, a youth pastor, I had a junior high boy who was... I mean, I loved this kid with all my heart, but he was the densest child I have ever known, okay? He's just like clueless all of the time. In, in fact, at least once I had to make him clean up himself for losing control of himself in public on a teen event, okay? This is pastoring junior hires. He, he was an interesting and wild character, but I loved him so much. And one day he said to me, in the middle of my lesson, by the way, something to the effect of, hey, what, 
what do you do all the time? What, what do I do all the time? I was like, well, I, okay, well, I, I go to seminary full time. I, I work another job and I'm a youth pastor. I'm pretty busy. And he goes, really? Well, yeah, what, what do you do all the time? I go to school and play video games. I was like, yeah, so when you leave here, you have other things to do, right? Yeah? It's like, did you not think that I had other things to do than to be here waiting for you? And he said, uh, no. It's like, so in your mind, I just sit in the church all the time waiting for the next teen event? Yeah, I guess. Okay. Well, that, that's a really interesting opinion. I said, no, but I'm really busy. Like, like I constantly have things to do, and I, I've got these different worlds that I'm involved in. I'm, I'm married to Sharice. I have family back in Wisconsin. I go to school full-time. I, I manage a mail center, and, and then I'm also the youth pastor. So, like, most every hour of my day is spoken for. And because he was like 13 years old, I mean, give him credit, right? It hadn't even occurred to him that I was a person, that I had things to do and places to go and people that I was responsible to. In his mind, I was responsible to him. And it's fun to make a joke out of 13-year-olds. But when we get to this moment where someone is cramping on our life and we begin to feel the disgust towards this person and we just want them to leave us alone. In this moment where the host becomes the hostage, what do we do? How do we find an empathy for people who encroach into our life? Because there are many people and many kinds of people that are exhausting that want space in our neatly manicured life. There are people who are poor, depressed, annoying, pompous, arrogant, proud, struggling, perpetually struggling. There are frustrating people. And it seems all too often that they make their way into my neatly cultivated space Take advantage of my hosting and make me a hostage in my own life. But people are far more robust than we give them credit for. They are more than the trouble they bring to my story. And while we want to understand everything about them, we often, we often assign simplistic understandings because they're minor characters in my story right? I am the major character in my story. They are a minor character in a story, and so we often dismiss them. But this is not the way of Jesus. It's certainly not the way that we hope Jesus welcomes us into his life. Because if you were to take stock of your Christian life, chances are you can point to moments that you've come to Jesus as the poor, the frustrated, the annoying, the difficult, the pompous, the arrogant, the proud. We have been these things in the presence of Jesus. And so often we find that he meets us with grace and understanding and answers and help and hope. 
And Jesus doesn't simply be this to us, but in his rearranging of our life as we come into relationship with him, he asks us over and over and over to turn this proverb on its head, to every once in a while make space in your life for people that irritate you, that have overstayed their welcome. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy, but there are so many parables and stories that Jesus tells that are are right in line with this proverb, that understand how difficult people can be, but Jesus invites us to open up our lives to these people, to negate the hate and the frustration that we can have for people that bother us, but instead try to fill it with love and empathy and care instead. Stories, for example, like when he gives instructions of how to attend a dinner party. This is right in line with the Proverbs. Someone has opened themselves to be our host. Come to my house. Enjoy the dinner. And we often think that that makes us the guest of honor. And in the ancient world, the way they would sit is that the host would sit at the very head of the table, and you were understood to be more important by how close you sat to the host. So the people who were right to the right and the left of the host were the most important people, and the people clear at the end of the other table were the people of the least privilege. And so people would show up at these parties elbowing themselves towards the front to find themselves at a seat nearest the host. We all want to be the popular and the privileged one. But Jesus notes that elbowing ourselves into a position we don't belong can cause us to be the despised guest. Jesus says, sit all the way at the least privileged position. Find yourself all the way at the far end of the table. Because if the host comes in and says you're more privileged than that, think of the honor you'll receive as you get to walk to the privileged position at the table. But think of the shame you'll receive if you sit at the privileged place and the host asks you to move on down in front of everyone. It's, it's really good dinner party advice, but it's also a really interesting insight into how we see ourselves and how important we see ourselves relative to how hosts are. But it doesn't just stop there. Jesus tells the story of the sheep and the goats at the end of Matthew. I, I don't know if I can find a more convicting piece of scripture than that story for my own life where Jesus calls people and he separates them into sheep and goats, those who will go with him into eternity and those who are uh, eternally damned to be not in the presence of God. And the discerning factor here is those who fed Jesus and clothed Jesus and visited him in prison, helped him when he was ill. And all the people say, I don't remember you being a jailbird, Jesus. I don't, I don't remember you being hungry, I don't remember you being naked. And Jesus says, the people who enter into your story that are so needy and take so much time and energy and struggle, when you have helped them find food and drink and clothe, you have done that to me. The people who enter into our carefully cultivated little bubble, our schedule, our well-manicured life, and cause us interruption, Jesus is saying, those difficult interrupters are me. And when you make space for them in your life, you are making space for me in your life. 
Then there's also the, the pompous, well-trained uh, well, uh, expert in the law who comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does it say in the law? And the, the teacher of the law says, love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. End of story. But the teacher of the law, who's ever pompous, wants to push it further. It says, the scripture says, I love this line right here. But he wanted to justify himself. Of course he did. And he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell one of his most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where two righteous and holy people see a man beaten on the side of the road and realize their schedule is such that they don't have time to have mercy on the person who needs help. And the person who comes by and sees this man beaten on the side of the road is a Samaritan. One of those people, the enemy. And he takes care of him. He bandages him up. He finds medical help for him. He cares for him, brings him to the hospital and pays his bill. And Jesus says to the teacher of the law, who is his neighbor? And the expert in the law begrudgingly says, he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. I think that's an important note in the text. Jesus calls him the Samaritan. The teacher of the law can't even bring himself to utter the word Samaritan. He says, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Jesus in these stories doesn't simply ask us to have hospitality. He asks us to be willing to lower ourselves to the stature of those who are struggling around us, to go above and beyond no matter what. To live like this is profoundly difficult. I, I don't know about you, but I've got a book that's this thick that has hour-by-hour hour appointments of my life. I try to keep very religiously and structured to my schedule. I don't love interruptions. I don't love my plans changing. I don't ha love having to stuff more things in. And yet Jesus constantly reminds me that it, life happens when the interruptions happen. The interruptions may be holy appointments that God is making for me to embody the presence of Christ for the sake of someone in need. It's not easy or fun to live like this, but it is profoundly the way of Jesus. And I know it matters because I grew up with my mom. Some of you knew my mom. Some of you met my mom. She was an incredibly merciful person. And I remember when I was early in high school, late in junior high, 13 or 14, about six or seven blocks from my house was a Wendy's. And I particularly remember this Wendy's because there was always a bag lady who was walking around that area. You know what a bag lady is, right? Often has a shopping cart, bags filled with stuff. She looked terrible, dirty, homeless. And I think most people's inclination when they saw her was to turn away. And rightfully so. She was needy. But not my mom. Every time my mom saw her, she stopped. Every single time. Every single time every single time. Drove me crazy. 
I don't know where I felt I had to be when I was 13, but I had things to do. And my mom would interrupt my schedule to pull over to a Wendy's to sit in a booth and talk to a bag lady. It happened all the time, at least once a month. My mom would see her, we'd be on, who knows where we'd be? Sports practice, doctor's appointment, school, didn't matter. My mom saw her, she pulled over and spent some time with her. She would bring her into Wendy's, pay her bill, buy her hot coffee, buy her food, and it wouldn't, wasn't just there. She would sit in a booth and talk with her, and then my sister and I would go sit in another booth. We didn't want to be seen by any of our friends, if you know what I mean. And my mom would just talk with her. An hour, hour and a half, two hours. Check in with her. How's life going? How are the people you love? Find out about why it was she was destitute, how she could help, what more she could do. And I would just sit in the corner thinking, when are we going to go? This is unbelievable. But my mom understood the way of Jesus in a way that I didn't at that point. That that person was someone, for some reason, that God called my mom to care for. And my mom, if she saw the bag lady and thought she had something better to do, understood the sheep and the goats. She was saying no to Jesus. For her, Jesus was in the difficult-to-love lady that everyone in the neighborhood knew. For her, she saw the face of Jesus in the person that no one else would stop to care for and talk to and love. This stuff is hard. It's difficult. It takes energy. And why do I say all this? Why do I teach all this way? We could have just gone to the proverb and said, those, those goofs kill us, man. They overstay their welcome. They'll make our life hard. Oh, it's so difficult. So easy to despise them. And the proverb is right. It's right on. But yet just at that moment that our heart begins to turn, Jesus comes along the scene in the Gospels and invites us to see them differently. Yeah, sure. It takes effort to dig someone out of a ditch who's been beaten by a robber. Sure, it takes effort to visit someone in prison. It takes effort to feed and clothe someone and to listen to the story of someone who's emotionally needy. It takes effort, and it's hard. But this is the way of Jesus. And more specifically, this is very particularly the way that Jesus welcomes our messy story into his life. As difficult as we can be, as hard and strange and overbearing as we could be, Jesus makes space in his life, in his kingdom, in his eternal world for us. And so as hard as this is, just at the moment where our heart begins to turn away from someone, Jesus invites us to lean back in, to take them seriously because, because the presence of Christ is in the difficult to love. And I want to remind you that in a world where we probably already feel like we're filled to the brim with empathy, where we've taken just enough, where this has been hard to make extra space for anyone else, that all of the struggles that we've experienced in the last year of 2020 are about to become the opportunities of 2021. As the world begins shifting back to quote-unquote normal, there's going to be a lot of people with a lot of unpacking that's going to need to be done. And it's going to be a pivotal moment in the history of evangelism in our country. 
It'll be a moment that we can take seriously if we can find ourselves present when people are hurting and looking for answers and point them to the ultimate answer in Jesus Christ. We can turn the struggles of the last year into incredible opportunities if we can expand our definition of hosting just a little further than we have the patience for right now. And so I close with a quote that I saw this week from Bob Goff. I don't know if you know Bob Goff. He writes great books about love. Just really good author. Bob Goff said this, and it really met me at the point of this sermon. I hope it does for you as well. Bob Goff said, there's so many people who want to change the world, but so few who want to be different than the world. So many people that want to change the world, but so few who want to live at a different pace, spend time with different kinds of people, have empathy for difficult people. So few who want to be different than the world. I hope that sits with you just a little bit. Make space to find the presence of Christ in difficult people. Make space in your own life to be the presence of Christ for difficult people. And we may just see the world change by our willingness to push the ability to be host just a little bit further. Would you stand with me as we sing a closing song?